Let me ask you a question. If you were to take a picture of your family and it were to really accurately reflect what your family is like, what would that picture look like? Would it be a studio portrait where you've got a, you know, a handsomely dressed father, a beautifully dressed mother, 2.4 really good-looking kids, you know, sitting there with a the dog and the cat and a couple of goldfish, you know, in the studio. Is that what your, you know, is that what your family portrait would look like? Or maybe it would be one of those, you know, panoramic pictures. You need that because you've got such a huge extended family and you're sitting down at the Thanksgiving meal and you've got, you know, several sets of families together in the extended family with the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and maybe a couple of people who've kind of been semi-adopted into the family and, you know, kind of part of the larger family unit. Is that what your family would look like? Uh, Would it look like uh, a a group of people just having the time of their lives on the ski slopes of Colorado? Uh, Would it be a couple that is getting older, moved from their 20s to their 30s, and you know, they're in the mid-30s now, and they desperately want to have kids, but they've been unable to do so, and they've come to the point now where they realize, uh, we're just not going to have children, and we've got to to face that, that our family is going to be the two of us. Uh, for the rest of our lives. Would your family picture have an empty space in it where uh, someone has uh, maybe recently passed away or left the family? Uh, you know, that's, that's part of reality. Uh, sometimes there are holes in our family. Would there maybe be a, a big tear down the middle, whether it's due to divorce or some other uh, estrangement that's occurred in the family? And so the, the portrait's kind of split and it's got those jagged, painful edges there would would one of the members of the family be off to the side kind of by themselves uh rejected or feeling rejected by the rest of the family would there be just one single person standing there alone maybe a couple of faded images in the background of what the family used to be like but now they're alone Uh, you know would it be a single mom with uh three kids and they're all looking pretty tired they're looking pretty haggard they're looking pretty worn out. I don't know what all of your families look like, but families come in different shapes. They come in different sizes. They come in different configurations. They're all unique. They're all different, but they're all important. And in God's sight, every family is priceless because it's composed of people, people whom he created, whom he loves, and whom he wants to have good family relationships, good relationships with other people. And, and I, think, I think that most of us intuitively understand that we as human beings were created for relationship. We were created for community. We were not meant to be alone. We're, as the poet John Donne puts it, he says, no man is an island entirely of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent a part of the main. No man is an island. None of us stands alone. We have relationships with other people. And God's primary means for us fulfilling the need that we have for relationships is in our family. It's not the only means. And some of you say, you know, I'm that single person with a couple of faded images in the background. Okay, okay, that's how you are at this time. That's fine. Our relationships 
uh, can come in different ways. Most of the time they're in a family. Sometimes they're not. And that's okay. But God's primary means for relationship is in our, in our family. The other thing I think we need to realize, and I think we all intuitively understand, is that our relationships are not perfect. No relationship that we have is perfect. They're all flawed. They're all broken. But that doesn't mean that they're not worth something. That doesn't mean that they're no longer priceless. Because in God's sight, they are. And God is in the business of cleaning up messes, of fixing that which is broken, of removing flaws, of working even through the flaws and the difficulties and the pain. I was talking to someone earlier uh, who just mentioned they had just gone through a really difficult uh, family situation and they said, but you know what? Even through the pain and the difficulty, God has been working for good in my life through it and even through the tears and the pain and the challenges. And, And they were saying how God had been working in their life through that. And it was just encouraging to, to hear them telling me that. God created us with a need for companionship. That's how he made us. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Second chapter in the Bible, God had just finished creating man. He had just made Adam. And he said, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. So he says, I created Adam, but it's not good to be a, for him to be alone, so I'm going to make someone to be a companion for him who corresponds to him. So then God brings in the next several verses all of the various animals that he's created. He brings them to Adam, and Adam looks at him and he names him. He says, well, that one's dog and that one's cat. And he says, yeah, I'm a dog guy, not a cat guy, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But he says, you know what? None of these really fits me. How does, how does he put it here? He say, it, God says, but for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. Why would God do it that way? Why would he bring him all the animals and then have him see that none corresponded to him? So he could have greater appreciation when God brought the one to him who was going to be his lifelong companion. He could see none of those work. None of those are for me. None of those are really like me. So what did God do? He made Eve. He made a woman. He brought her to Adam. And then Adam says, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife and they become a new family. And so the idea for the family is not ours. It's not a human institution. It's a God thing. God is the one who put the need in us for human companionship, and he's the one that has provided the family as the primary means for meeting that need. Again, it's not the only means. Us here at Renaissance Church, we can be family for one another, you know, our neighbors, our friends, etc. But the primary means is the biological family that's, that he has given us. You know, I was thinking about this morning's message and, and preparing for it over the last couple of weeks and, you know, during Christmas and that sort of thing because I knew I'd be speaking this week. And as I was chewing sort of on Christmas and on this message, I was struck by something that's about the Christmas story that's really obvious, but there was a subtlety that I had never seen before. And it has to do with Jesus being born into a human family. Now, you guys, everybody here, I think, knows Jesus was born into a human family. So where's the subtlety in that? No, that's, that's not my point. Think about it this way. 
Jesus began his public ministry when he was about 30 years old, okay? And he ministered for three and a half years publicly before he was crucified. Couldn't God have just come in, in, in the person of Jesus, kind of walked out of the desert, walked out of the wilderness, showed up in Jerusalem, and began his public ministry at age 30? I mean, he's God. You know, if, 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 if Mary's going to get pregnant via the Holy Spirit, couldn't God have just come to earth as a fully grown human being? Sure, he could have done it that way, but he didn't do it that way. He had Jesus be born into a family with a mother and a father, Mary and Joseph, brothers and sisters, and all the the pluses and minuses of growing up in an imperfect human family. Why in the world would God want to do it that way? I think there are a number of reasons, but the one I want to focus on this morning is because that gave Jesus the same kinds of experiences that you've had and that I've had in our families. Jesus can honestly say, I've been there. I've done that. I know what it's like. And so when you are experiencing the great joys of family life, he can say, yeah, I experienced those joys as well. And when you're experiencing the lows, the difficulties, he can say, yeah, I've done that as well. And I can comfort you and I'm there for you because I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be in a, in a happy family. I know what it's like to be in a fallen family. And I want us to spend a little bit of time taking a look at a couple of incidents from Jesus' life that show us that he knows what it's like to live in a less than perfect family. First, let's take a look, take a look at an event that occurred in, in early in Jesus' ministry, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 3. Uh, again, this is early in Jesus' ministry and he's just beginning to collect crowds around him. People are beginning to see who he is and they're really excited about him. So it says, now Jesus went home and a crowd gathered so that they were not able to eat. So this is a big crowd. And in those days, you know, you didn't have a McDonald's that everybody could run to or something like that. Um, and so, you know, sometimes when you've got a big crowd, it's difficult for people to eat. And so Jesus wasn't eating. The people in the crowd weren't eating. And his family says, when his, it says, when his family heard this, they went out to receive strain him for they said he's out of his mind the guy's gone nuts i mean who does he think he is like the messiah or something like that you know what is this with jesus and and there they are and they think he's lost it imagine the conversation that they had when he's out there like what are we going to do we're going to go get him we're going to let him make a further fool of himself i mean the guy's going to starve to death and all these people and what's going on all right let's go no you go get him no, you know What's the conversation that they had? And so then he comes home, you know, and, and, and they say, okay, now Jesus, just take it easy. Why don't you just sit down, you know, lie down here on your mat. You need to rest a little bit. I know you've had a tough day, you know, and they're like, get the, you know, get the psychiatrist and, you know, that sort of thing. You know, it's a tough, it's not an easy thing to go through. Now, most of us have not gone through that kind of a scenario in our lives where our family members think we're crazy, But I think a lot of us have gone through a situation where our family members have an agenda for us that's not exactly the agenda we have for ourselves. I worked uh, for, for 13 years as a chaplain at Princeton University and spent time with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students. And I don't know how many times I'd talk to a student who would say, you know, my parents want me to be a lawyer, an engineer, you know, an investment banker, a doctor, you name it. But I want to be an artist. I want to be a musician. I want to, you know, and there's the tension there, you know, and the identity that they believe they have, who they think they are, maybe their parents are saying, that's not who we want you to be. You know, we think you're crazy. I mean, you want to be an artist? 
What do you, you know, you, you better learn the, the, the most important line. You want fries with that? You know, they, they just don't understand me. They don't get who I am. You know, and it, that can play itself out in so many different ways in our families. But I think you get the point. Jesus has been through the situation where his family members didn't understand him and it went so far that they wanted to restrain him because they thought he had gone nuts. So he knows what it's like to be in a situation where he's not fully appreciated, where he's not fully understood by his own family members, by those whom he loves the most and who should love him the most. Let's move ahead to the end of Jesus' life in John chapter 19 and a scene where Jesus is on the cross. He's within an hour or two of dying and uh, this is where we pick it up in verse 25 of John chapter 19. Now standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, look, here's your son. And he said to the disciple, look, here's your mother. And from that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. And the disciple that's being referred to there is the apostle John, the guy that wrote the, the gospel of John. He never refers to himself by name. I think it's, it's, he's trying to be modest. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. John was Jesus' best friend on earth the closest relationship from a human perspective that john uh, that jesus had was with john and the family member whom he was closest to was his mother of all of the family members if you read through uh, any one of the four gospels you see that the one family member who had the best understanding of who jesus was was his mother so he had a really close relationship with his mother and so when he was dying he said to john take care of my mom. Would you take care of my mom? And John says, yes, I'll take care of your mother. Jesus is the older son, felt responsible to take care, you know, to ensure for his mother's care. We've got that situation as well. You know, I had a a friend just uh, passed away on the day after Christmas. He was one of my former roommates and his only surviving relative was his mother who's in an assisted care facility. You don't think that he was concerned for his mother's welfare? Jesus has been there. He's done that. He knows what it's like to have concern for the welfare of a family member. What's interesting about this little story here is what's not stated. Where's Joseph? Where's Mary's husband, Joseph, in all of this? If Joseph were around, he would have been taking care of Mary. There would have been no issue. There would have been nothing here for Jesus to say. Most scholars think that by this time, Joseph had died. He was gone. And if that's the case, and I think it is, Jesus had lost his, his earthly father, his stepfather, so to speak. And he obviously cared about Joseph, and he, I'm sure he missed him. You know, so Jesus has been there and done that with that. How many of us have lost, you know, just this fall, how many of us have lost a loved one or a close friend. A number, my dad passed away in September. Neville's just uh, recently, a number of you in the congregation here this morning, you know, that's happened to you. And over the years, 
Jesus has been there. He's done that. He's gone through that and he knows what it's like. And we can turn to him for comfort in that stress and difficulty in our family. So whether it has to do with the, the brokenness of our family members and, and, and ourselves and the pain that we cause one another because we're fallen human beings, because we're imperfect and flawed human beings, or whether it has to do that we live in a world that's broken and there's sickness and there's disease and there's death and we don't live forever in these, in these mortal bodies. Whatever it is or whatever it is in between, Jesus has gone through it. He's gone through something like that. He's gone through the pain. He's gone through the misery. And so we can turn to him for comfort in those difficult, in those, in those challenging times. So where do we go from here? You know, what do we want to do with, with what we've been talking about and, and where are we going in the coming weeks? Over the next four weeks, Rich is going to be uh, bringing us four different messages about different aspects of our family lives. Let me really encourage you to come on out to those. If you can't make it, all the messages are on the, uh, the website. You can listen to, to them there. But I'd really encourage you to, to come on out to that. But I want to give you a couple of practical suggestions that you can begin to apply uh, today. First, Cherish your family. I want you to cherish your family. I, I was thinking about saying love your family, and that's, that's a fine way of doing it. But using the word cherish instead of the word love, at least for me, it kind of shakes me, wakes me up, you know, shakes me out of my complacency. I love chocolate, but if I love my wife and daughters the way I love chocolate, am I not being maybe a little bit self-oriented there? You know, chocolate gives me this great feeling, and it gives me, you know, and da-da-da-da, you know, that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with the good feeling that we get uh, from our relationship, from our positive relationships with our family members. I come home, you know, from the office and Christine, my youngest, you know, often comes running up and just says, Dad, it's so great to see you. And if I say, thank you very much, sweetie, it's good to see you too, you know, what's that going to do for her and what's that going to do for me? But if I respond and say, yeah, it's great to see you and it's a heartfelt, I'm really excited that you are coming up to me and telling me how much you love me, what does that do for her? You know, it's a good thing for her. So it works together when we do that. So it's absolutely fine to enjoy what we receive from our family members. But when you think of the word cherish, I would never say I cherish chocolate or I cherish, you know, the Dallas Cowboys who happen to be the best team in the NFL in spite of what the Patriots think. You know, we'll talk about that after the Super Bowl and we'll see whether I eat my words or not. But seriously... You know, I would never think of cherishing chocolate or cherishing skiing. Cherishing means my heart goes out to the object or the, really, in this case, the person I cherish. So I want to cherish my wife. I want to cherish my daughters. I want to cherish my brother, my mom, you know, other, other family members. Having that heartfelt desire to see them grow, to see them flourish, to see them blessed by God. I think we're all familiar with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The way Jesus puts it is love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Over the years, I've had tons of conversations with people about how do you apply the golden rule in your life. And, and I'd say, you know, the first thing that a lot of people think of is, well, it's, I would say it's, it's fine, it's good, but it's not deep enough. And, and that is, think about what would what would make me happy and then do it for somebody else? The problem is that sometimes that leads to like the husband giving the wife the universal remote, you know, for Christmas, you know. He really wants a universal remote, so he says, okay, golden rule, do unto others, so I'm going to give her a universal remote. 
Gee, thanks, honey. Really appreciate that. Here, why don't you go ahead and use it? You know, I mean, it says, you know, it's okay if you're six years old, but if you're 36 years old, you know, we need to graduate a little bit beyond that. What would I really like for someone to do for me? I want them to say, who is Clay? What's he like? What turns him on? What excites him? And then do that for me. Do something for me that would be meaningful to me. That's what I want someone to do for me. So that's what I ought to do for somebody else. And in order to do that, I need to be a student of my family members. If I want to do for Anne what's meaningful to her. I've got to know her. I've got to study her. Not like some sort of psychology or sociology project, but as one whom I cherish. I've got to spend time understanding her likes and her dislikes. I've got to understand time thinking about what excites her, what bores her, what does she love, what does she fear, and then think, what can I do that would be beneficial and encouraging to her. So, you know, you think about it, some practical suggestions. Dads, you got little daughters. How many of you know the names of your daughter's dolls or their stuffed animals? Now, the moms know them, but the dads don't always. Sit down and spend time with your kids talking about their stuffed animals and their doll, you know, their dolls or whatever it is. Find out about their friends at school. You know, uh, think about your, your wife. What would be meaningful to her? You know, maybe it's Uh, an afternoon just out with her friends without the kids around. You know, what would be meaningful to the husband? You know, maybe just the the free afternoon to watch the football games, to watch the playoffs. Maybe with you sitting by his side, don't ask him all the questions about everything that's going on, you know, just let him, you know. You know what I'm saying? It's, It's think what would be meaningful to him, what would make a difference in his life, in her life, in your child's life, in your parent's life, and do that for them. I had um, someone came up to me after the first service and said, guess what? My husband did that yesterday. And he was just so excited when he heard the message because he's, you know, he's beaming. And she talked about how he sent her to go get, uh, you know, just to the spa to get a massage and took, took his daughters to get their nails done. And, you know, the mom and the daughters were just like, he is golden, you know. And so there you, he's, he's set, you know. And, and that's, that's wonderful. But seriously, you know, think about who your family members are, what would be meaningful to them. And let me suggest that this month, in the month of January, whether it is your family who is near or your family who is far, do one practical thing to encourage, to help, that would be meaningful to show that you love and cherish each family member. So, you know, you got a relative that lives off in California, you can't get out there, Talk to them on the phone and spend the phone conversation finding out what's going on in their life, talking about what you know they would want to talk about, not what you would want to talk about. You know, uh, take your kids to a movie that they would want to see even though you might not want to see. And don't just send them to the movie. Go to the movie with them. You know, that means even more. And we could go on. And I don't know your particular family configuration. I know some of you better than others. You know, but each of us is different. Each of our family members are different. Each of our family configurations are different. So study your family, know them, and then do something this month that's meaningful for them. In fact, if you want to really build a habit, do it every month for the next year. And then, you know, next January we can talk about it and see, hey, Did it make a difference in my family life? Let me give you one more idea for 
uh, how we can grow in our family relationships. This one may seem a little counterintuitive at first, but I think it's very powerful, and that is pursue God. Seek God. Grow in your relationship with God. Get to know God better. How in the world is that going to make a difference in your family life? Think in a couple of ways. One, if Jesus really is who the Bible says he is, then he has been through all of these experiences, that same sorts of things that we've been through. And so when we're struggling in our family life, he's there and he can comfort us, he can encourage us, he can guide us, he can enable us to love our family members. The other is that our capacity for love will increase the more we understand God's love for us. The greater the depth of our appreciation for God's love for us, the greater our ability to love our family members. Now, some of you are saying, "Mm, maybe, not so sure about that. Fair enough, good question. I'd love to take more time to talk about that now, but we're out of time, so what I want to do is I'm going to post an entry on the Renaissance blog, either tomorrow or Tuesday, and you guys all need to go and read that, and it's going to talk more about what it really means to pursue God and how that can make a difference in our family lives. Go ahead and leave a comment there if you've got a question or something or talk to me either after the service now or next week. Talk to Rich. You know, and uh, it's just a good opportunity to think more deeply about this idea. One way, if you want to pursue God, if you want to sort of take the next step in your relationship with God, if you're a follower of Christ, let me encourage you to come back tonight, 6 o'clock, for our Vesper service. It's our monthly service of prayer, of, of, of Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. We'll have a message from the Bible. It's, just a, it's a contemplative service. It, it's a service where we can reflect on who God is and what he's done for us. And I know for me personally, it's just a really helpful way to grow in my relationship with God. So let me encourage you to come on back at six o'clock uh, for that as well. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are a God who knows what it's like to be a man because not only are you God, you're also a man who was born into a family, a less than perfect family. You had, you had a mother, a human father, brothers and sisters, all of whom were flawed. Sometimes they, they hurt you and, and, and one another just like we do in our own families. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you had that experience so that we can turn to you in, com- uh, when, in times of difficulty when we need comfort. And, and I pray that each of us would do that, uh, that we would look to you uh, for strength and help uh, in our various trials in our families, that we'd look to you as well for how to love our families as an example, the way you loved uh, your mother, for instance. And, and Jesus, I pray as well that we would grow in our appreciation of your love for us and that as a result, our capacity to love others would increase. Father, we thank you, we praise you for the gift that you've given us of our families, that they're priceless. Help us to cherish them. Help us to do them good for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.